Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Before we launch into the conversation we had with our guest, we have a favor to ask. Yes, we do, Tim. Behavioral Grooves is a podcast that shares important research and applications from behavioral science to listeners in over 100 countries. We've also been recognized by Chartable as a global top 20 social science podcast for our more than 150 episodes that we've published since we started in the fall of 2017. And we've recently launched a Patreon site to help us offset the costs of our labors. Each one-hour episode requires up to 10 hours of effort from Kurt and me to produce and create the show. We have no corporate sponsors and believe that, like us, you value the content delivered in behavioral groups. Yeah, and most of those 10 hours are Tim's, so he's really looking forward <laughs> to maybe having his work recognized. It's all or, about me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some of our listeners are already subscribing to our Patreon page. Thank you for those people. And Tim, how, if people wanted to subscribe or to contribute, how do they do that? Just go out to www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves. Great. And on another note, we've recently had a couple of positive reviews from our listeners, not the negative reviews. We won't share those with you. <laughs> we won't even we have to get go. negative reviews. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We don't get negative reviews, right? Well, all right. Well, first, Tracy O recently left us a terrific five-star review where she said, quote, I feel smarter for listening. It's so interesting to learn why people do some of the things they do. This show also gives me insight into my employees and why they may be behaving in a certain way, unquote. Thank you, Tracy O. That was very kind. Yes, thank you, Tracy O. We also heard from Don B who had this to say, quote, this is my new favorite podcast on behavioral science. Thank you, close quote. Wow, those are great. All right, Tim, enough begging and enough bragging. <laughs> yes. Let's get on to the oh exciting gosh. guest for this episode. Yes, tell the listeners who we talked to. We got to talk with Dr. John Barge. Dr. John Barge is a professor of psychology and management at Yale University. Dr. Barge's name may be familiar because he is one of the leading researchers in the field of automaticity or priming with over 100 peer-reviewed articles, chapters in over 30 books, and he founded the ACME Lab at Yale in order to research the unconscious and implicit influences on social judgment, motivation, and behavior. You may have also heard of him because some of his work was highlighted in the replication crisis, which we discuss his thoughts on in this episode. Yeah, some of his research is focused on embodied cognition effects, which, which Kurt mentioned, uh, which are influences are of social experiences, such as washing one's hands or holding something warm or rough on metaphorically related social variables, like how physical warmth leads to feelings of physical warmth, for example. His work is all about diving deep into the unconscious. And an interesting new line of research is focused on how social goals and political attitudes can be influenced by satisfaction of underlying physical level motivations. For example, how immunization against the flu virus influences attitudes towards immigration as invaders of one's cultural body. He is doing some fascinating work, and we really enjoyed our conversation with him. We wanted to cover his work on priming in general, and especially his work on goal priming. Yeah, and we also couldn't resist talking about music, as he was a DJ in college for several different radio stations. It was more fun to the square inch than either of us deserve, Kurt. 
I have no idea what more fun to the square inch <laughs> means, but it was actually fun to talk to him about music, um, which is not something I normally say. So uh, with that, please sit back, relax, and enjoy a warm, brimming glass of subconscious curiosity as you listen to our conversation with Dr. John Barsh. John Bard, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Kurt. We are excited to have you here, and we always start off with our speed round. So, Tim, I'll give you the first question. Go for it. Thanks. This is going to be a big big shock. So, coffee or tea? Um, hmm. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't Total really false. seem like there was a lot of a lot of really um ozing there. That might be yeah. okay. <laughs> All right. So if you if you had the opportunity to be an expert in a new language or uh, expert in a new instrument, which would you pick? Ooh, a new meaning uh, it just was invented or no, new and the one that you oh, don't, don't oh, that's a tough know. one. I say a, a guitar. I've always wanted to play electric guitar and I just have fumbly little short fingers and I'm terrible. But um, I always also wanted to speak German fluently since I lived in Germany for several years in the 90s and uh, was a professor in Germany, but they, they allow you to teach in English. But I've always I've had dreams where I was able to speak German. It's just it would be so wonderful. But it, it, of the two of them, I'd have to say to be able to play guitar. Well, you could do German uh, guitar <laughs> while uh, singing, yeah. singing a German yes, famous song. German guitar. Yeah, there's a lot of that. A lot yeah. of recordings of that around. A little yeah. fun, fun, fun on the Autobahn. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so who would you rather have dinner with, Jimmy Page or Robert Plant? Whew. It has to be Page, but I have a feeling Plant would be more fun. <laughs> really? Oh, I totally yeah. disagree. I totally really? disagree. Yeah, okay. I totally disagree. Okay, but, but we'll we'll have we can discuss more of that later. This is the speed round. So yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into some of these. All right. So if if one of our listeners has an interview coming up and uh, they were to bring the interviewee uh, a gift like hot coffee or iced tea, which would you recommend that they bring for the interviewer? Well, certainly hot coffee. Yeah. Something yeah. warm, something warm. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about that because that leads into one of one of the famous studies that you you've you've done uh, about you know hot versus cold and and some of the interesting pieces of that. So could you expand upon that uh, that one in particular, and then we'll get into a little bit more about just in general priming. Yeah, there's there's a sort of a movement called embodiment uh, in psychology last uh, twenty or so years. Uh, that that is, essentially says that your physical experiences influence your psychology, influences the way you think about people in straightforward ways. So that um, if you are uh, looking far in the distance, you have more emotional control because you are more distant, uh, you know, psychologically from the thing that's bothering you. Uh, and if you are holding something warm, you actually physically warm, like a cup of coffee, you actually become more warm uh, in, in, in general to people you're with, more trusting of them and more generous towards them. Um, and think of them the same way. So what is this going on that these uh, your physical sensory experiences lead to these psychological concepts? And there's a lot of theory about how this happens, but, but basically it's because 
uh, th these uh, concepts about the physical world, something being hard or soft, far or near, left or right, up or down, warm or cold, uh, th that's the infant's only experience. The infant is not able to think and relate things. They don't have any memory yet. Uh, and so really what they've got is what they're feeling and sensing at the moment. And those are the first concepts that we form, mental concepts we form that, that start populating our mind. Um, our knowledge of the world starts with the physical world. Well, those are the ones that are built on to uh, have further concepts. And, and, and uh, when we get language and we're three years old or that, but there's a pre-existing whole array of concepts about the world, bright and, and dark and all, everything else, um, quiet and loud. Uh, all these things are there. And we tend to use those, if we, set, we tend to appropriate those to talk about people. So we talk about a distant father, or we talk about a warm friend. You know, we talk about a close relationship. If we look at our language about, you know, how we talk about people, it's a lot of words that really have to do with the physical world, uh, a hard test. Uh, hard? Well, yeah, because it's resistant to getting done. It's resistant. You know, hard things, you hit them and you hurt your knuckle. Soft things are more resistant. Uh, soft on crime. Yeah. You're more you're more lenient towards criminals and you're, you're not uh, taking a hard line against them. And so we use these words all the time. We don't realize it. And it's really because they're there early in our life. Now, getting to the warm one, this is a very special sensory uh, one because it turns out it's it's hardwired in the brain. Not all of these hard, soft, near, far, uh, up, down. Not all of those are hardwired. But this one is, and it turns out uh, that uh, the same little part of the human brain called insula, a little walnut-shaped part right in the middle, like a junction box, responds the same way to something that's physically warm as, as to somebody like your close family and friends. So the same little area lights up if you give somebody in a, a magnet doing an fMRI, uh, you know, getting their brain image. If, you, if they're holding something like a warm cup of coffee, this little part lights up. Then you ask them to text their family and friends or, or get a message from a family or friend. The same little area lights up. And so these are the, the, the two senses of warm are actually tied together. Why would that be? Because when infants are tiny and helpless, they're being held by the mother in breastfeeding or they're being held by the father. In fact, hospitals start doing this now, right? To put the little infant, newborn infant, right against the skin, laying it on the, the, the chest of the father too and the mother. And what this does, believe it or not, it's a signal, a primitive signal to the infant that you can trust this person. It actually connects saying, you feel physical warmth, you're being held close, this person cares about you, is going to feed you, shelter you, uh, take care of you, and you're helpless. So that's obviously number one priority, uh, you know, and it's all unconscious, it's all innate, it's all, uh, you know, all that. Uh, but that's a signal that says you can trust this person. And then that, that connection between physical warmth and trust and social warmth of trust, someone has, has your back and all that, that persists the rest of your life. So, it, but it's set early. And uh, you know, sometimes people ask me for these life hacks and what, what's one thing, you know, you can take out of these unconscious mechanisms. And what I tell everybody is the most important thing if you're going to have kids. A lot of parents love their children, but they don't believe in hugging. They don't believe in physical contact. They just love them. But it's not that they don't love them, but they don't believe in that. And I say, hug the hell out of them. I just hug, 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 because that's signaling that the ignorant infant who doesn't know anything that this is some, you know, it'll, it'll bond, you'll, you'll bond, they'll bond with you, they'll trust you, they'll become securely attached. And it turns out that at one year of age, how attached you are to your mother or father at one year when they measure it predicts your relationship success the rest of your life. You'll have more friends, 
in grade school, you'll you'll have fewer breakups in high school. You'll have longer lasting relationships, close relationships in your 20s and 30s. And they followed people who were measured at one year of age, how attached they were to their, their parent. And this predicts, and they're still doing it. In fact, this study's done at Minnesota by Jeff yep. Simpson. Uh, uh, and still collect, they're still collecting data on this set of people from the 1970s. So yeah. the simplest thing you can do, but hug, hug, hold close, warm, have them feel, you know, you're, and fathers too, um, because bonding with the parent is a, such an important thing for the rest of their, your child's life. Yeah. So that goes back to some of like Harley's monkey experiments with the mother and the wire, wire monkey versus the cloth yes. one and giving right. food and different pieces. And then Bobby's obviously attachment theory is right. I would say about. the two of them, just because I, I want to give, I like to give credit where credit is due. You don't want to give credit to Harlow here. No, that's <laughs> well, <laughs> that for, for that reason too. It was pretty cruel what they did, yeah. but um, a lot of animal research and even human research, they were doing lobotomies on kids back then too. Yeah, I mean, it's horrible. But uh, taking that aside, uh, Harlow mentioned many things that might influence this, this bonding relationship. And the warmth was just one of many, and it didn't seem to be emphasized at all. Bowlby was the one who laid it all out evolutionarily. And he said, this actually should happen for all mammals because they're breastfeeding. And, and made this prediction back in 1972. And in my book, I even give credit to Dante because in 1330, Dante, <laughs> You know, what the hell, right? I mean, I'm watching this uh, documentary on, on the History Channel and I'm uh, just watching it. And, and it's like every other night on the History Channel, they have a documentary on hell. I, it's like the Hell Channel. So I was watching the <laughs> Hell Channel. And, and, and here it is like, oh, level one and level five, you know, and then level nine. Oh, the worst. Oh, what's on level nine? I said, it's the worst. Well, what? Hey, you know, they've already had murderers. <laughs> I mean, murderers are on seven. Lawyers are on five. I mean, they've already hit the two. And then, and then you got, and then you got what's on like what nine is the people who betray close others, like a Bernie yeah. Madoff, right? Yeah. That not just a fraud guy, but a, a person who, who who betrays the his friends and his family. And this is like with Judas and Jesus Christ. Uh, Dante has the guy who betrayed Dante himself. You know, the other side, Satan's chewing on his head uh, in the inferno. But the key is, I'm watching this, yeah, yeah. What is the punishment? What is the contrapasso? What is the punishment that fits the crime? Poetic justice uh, at level nine, you know, that Dante was famous for, poetic justice. They're frozen in ice. Yeah. They're frozen in ice in the middle of fiery hell. They're frozen in ice for all eternity. The right. coldness, physical coldness was the punishment for social coldness. And he knew this. He grokked this, right? He got this uh, in 1300, very sensitive and incredible poet. Um, and he got that. So 800 years or 700 years later, neuroscience confirms Dante's <laughs> metaphorical prediction there that the two are actually connected in our minds. Wow. Yeah. So, John, can you give us a, a quick overview of priming, what it is, what it isn't, just for our listeners who may not be as familiar uh, with the concept as, as we are? Sure. And it's, it's actually so simple. It's, it's really how the physical, the world outside of you makes contact with your mind. So I'm looking at uh, a picture of a tree. Well, the, the idea of a tree is now active in my mind. I didn't intend that to happen, but I'm looking at a picture of a tree. It comes in through my eyes and it activates the idea of a tree. Uh, if you see somebody you know, that also happens. The representation of that person in your mind becomes active. It's something that's very direct. It's, it's, it's natural perception. We, we're always in contact with our world, with reality. And if we're not, we're psychotic. I mean, so, so you know, normal people are generally in touch with the real world outside of themselves. 
And this is all it is. So what happens, though, is that uh, when things are active uh, in your mind, because you see the tree or you see your friend or or you look at a photograph of your mother on the wall, let's say, well, that that representation in your mind persists for a while. And that's the key, because it's not like you look at the picture of your mom and it's active in your head. That's my mom. And then you look away and it's and the thing in your head goes off. Because our, our brain operates on chemicals, which have a sort of an uptake and a down downturn uh, time, it's, it's, a, a, it's not instantaneous, so things that are active in your mind persist for a while afterwards. And so they can linger on into the next situation, or they can, they can be active as you make some decision, or maybe you choose what to do. So if I'm someone who wants to make my mother proud of, of me, I have a, a, a strong goal with my mother to make her proud of me, and I look at my picture of my mom without maybe realizing it, I might start working harder on what I'm working on. Uh, I might uh, work longer and harder, and I, I wouldn't know why, but the goal or the motive of making her proud of me, the achievement goal, achievement motive, has been triggered just by merely looking at her. And I didn't intend that goal, I didn't choose it or anything else. So, so what's going on is that the outside world activates things in your mind in a passive way. And that activation causes things to become active in your mind, like your goals or your feelings or your emotions or, or your knowledge of whatever that is, that then is active for a while in your mind and then is used in your conscious processes to make decisions or choices or uh, judge how you feel about something. This is how the coffee study works, that a feeling of, of warm coffee persists for a while after you hold it. And then when people rate somebody for an impression of them, they think that person is more trustworthy, more generous. Was this a five minutes after they've held the coffee? Uh, so, so it persists for a while after you don't have any idea that you're thinking this person you're reading about is warm and generous and trustworthy because you held coffee. We don't have a theory that says these things should happen. It's irrational. And yet that's how these things happen. That's the passive uh, activation of things without realizing it. Now, the, the interesting thing, though, is if you do know about it, then it seems to ruin the effect. So mm. knowing about these effects actually, for one thing, um, prevents them from happening or stops them from happening on the order of uh, so we can't tickle ourselves. Right. We know it's coming and it's hard to tickle ourselves. If somebody else does it, we're really ticklish. Uh, our knowledge of what's going on interferes with these natural unconscious processes. They're sort of passive. Uh, and so the more people know about what's going on, this is one thing that I have a, a problem with where people think that priming studies are some kind of experimental demand, like in the laboratory, like, oh, they figure out what you want and they give you what you want. It turns out when people are aware of the prime or, or think the prime might have influenced them, you actually get the opposite effects. You either get no effects at all or the opposite of what you might predict uh, as in our study. So it's actually a very passive, natural effect that that conscious awareness and conscious thinking about these things interferes with. So, John, how do we know our, or uh, what does neuro neuroscience tell us about all of the things that are stimulating us that are available to us that are, as you said, that are coming, the images coming in from the outside world into our mind and connecting with us? To what degree do we know what are the things that are influencing us versus all the random things that we're seeing that may not be influencing us? Yeah, there's a. This is a, a one of the major questions of, of psychology for the last uh, hundred years, Tim. This is this is uh, you know well, maybe you uh, could just answer it for us now then. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> in, a, in a sentence or two. Uh, yeah, uh, there's uh, two camps on this, and uh, one camp is sort of the social psychology, and this goes back to Richard Nisbet and Tim Wilson about 1970s, where they they argue we really don't have very good introspective access to what really influences us. We have theories, 
So our theories about what should influence us uh, uh, cause us to make you know ideas. So for example, there's a, there's a very interesting study in Italy uh, about 2012, 2013, where they sent out a thousand job applications to real jobs. I mean, this is a real, uh, these are real jobs. They sent out identical applications to these jobs, but they varied the photograph. Uh, also, they varied if it was a man or a woman, but they also varied the photograph. If it was attractive woman or man or an unattractive woman or man. They also had a no photograph condition. And it turns out like, the identical uh, application with an attractive woman photograph was called in for an interview 57% of the time. The same application with an unattractive woman was called in 6% of the time. And everything on that application is the same. Now, the people, there's laws against discrimination based on looks and things like that. And the people who were talked to, uh, the personnel directors who made these uh, decisions said, no, 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 this is not some factor that influenced me at all. Well, it did. And it did because it's it, it actually looking at attractive people is rewarding. And actually, there are studies showing that our, our reward centers of our brain become active just by looking at something attractive. And but the problem is that feeling, that rewardingness, that pleasant feeling, the good positive feeling, is misattributed to something about the application. Oh, they have great letters of recommendation. Oh, they have a GPA. Oh, they went to Harvard. Oh, whatever that is. And, and so the feelings are floating around and it's your theory that's what should have influenced me. Oh, then it, it, was, a, it was the quality of the letter that they wrote uh, for the job. And so you misattribute these feelings. We're not that good at locating what the cause of our feelings are. It's sort of an amorphous um, pool of goodness or pool of badness. And we have to figure out what caused it. And, and here are people in real life, you know, uh, making an important decision about somebody's future. And they're trying to be fair, presumably. I think probably most of them were. And yet they're still influenced by the attractiveness um, of the person, also their gender. Uh, and this happens with stereotyping and racism and everything else, too. Um, social class. All these things factor in and you have theories and, and you think, that, no, that didn't influence me. Um, and yet it did. And so that's one camp. The other camp is uh, doesn't really deal with the real world. I mean, the other camp uh, has models of, of decision-making and judgment uh, when people are thinking hard. I'm, I'm thinking of Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. This is really a book for decision-makers. This is a book for financial decision-makers who really are trying to make a decision. They have all the information in front of them. And they're they're looking at it analytically and trying to make the right decisions. Well, that's a that is important, but that's a special case of normal life or everyday life. We're not all financial decision makers with data in front of us making conscious decisions about things. We're sort of you know going on the fly a lot of times and doing the best we can by the seat of our pants uh, in 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 everyday life. And we're more influenced by these uh, extraneous influences than we might realize. So. We just talked with Gary Latham, who I know you've you've conversed with and 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 talked with a lot about this. And and his we we talked to him about goal priming, uh, and, and I just wanted to get your take on how goal priming is different or isn't different from effective priming and some of the behavioral priming work that that you've been doing. How does it all relate? How how is it different and or is it different at all? Yeah, well, see, I started goal priming, so I'm going to say yeah. <laughs> you know, in 1990, uh, Peter Goldwitzer and I wrote some papers and started doing some publications um, showing uh, basically uh, goals could be primed and operate, especially achievement, um, uh, cooperation, lots of that. 
Um, and that was a, a big break at the time because <clears throat> cognitive science and, and all was uh, very much uh, not wanting to look at things like affect and motivation. In fact, in 1980s, they said we should not talk, we should control for these things because they're contaminants. We, ah. should, we should study cognition in its pure case and not talk about motivations and wishes and desires or not talk about feelings and affect and subjective states. And they actually say this. I mean, there's books like Howard Gardner, very famous books, The Mind's New Science, where they actually say that we should not uh, contaminate our study of the co uh, cognitive processes by these, these uh, contaminants like motivations and affect and things like that. You know, it drove my advisor in grad school, Robert Zions at Michigan, and drove him crazy. He would he would complain about this all the time when he saw me at conferences later about they still don't want to talk about affect. They still don't <laughs> want to include affect. And and so here we have uh, uh, priming going on. And I was trying to expand it to see what could be primed, what, what happens in the real world that actually could be primed. And we did concepts and impression formation. We did some evaluations and attitudes and affect. That was all 1980s, long time ago. But then Peter and I met in, um, in uh, Germany in eight, 1989, and uh, we just, it was like a perfect combination of his expertise and mine. I knew nothing about motivation. He knew little about the work on, going on with automaticity and with uh, unconscious and this and that. And so we actually put our stuff together and then started doing studies on goal priming. Um, and, and, and essentially it works really well. Uh, it works really well in the laboratory. The idea is that uh, the breakthrough really uh, was just a, a very simple one to say, uh, I have to backtrack a, a second. Motivation was a separate science in psychology until around 1995. It was not integrated at all with cognitive or social or anything else. It was its own thing with its own methods. And a lot of it was projective, like the Rorschach test, you know, and these kinds of achievement motivations from the 1950s. Well, in trying to integrate everything into this new cognitive psychology model, we said, well, maybe goals are mental representations too. If they're mental representations too, there's a representation of a goal, what you want to achieve, how to achieve it, all of that's in a package in the mind, a representation in the mind. Well, then it should be subject to the same laws of automatic activation as stereotypes are. The more you choose a goal in a certain situation, the more strongly associated that goal becomes with that situation. Maybe when you enter that situation in the future, that goal will become active just because you're in that situation. It becomes tied to the situation. So you're in a classroom, you study, you, you focus your attention, you're uh, in a church, you're respectful and quiet. All these kinds of goals and motives are associated with the situations where they're usually uh, pursued if you do it frequently and consistently enough. If that's so, then you can activate these goals by activating situations or triggering these contextual cues. We started doing that. We started doing that with, with words relating to goals. That worked. People were more cooperative uh, in, a, in a competitive cooperative task like Prisoner's Dilemma. They were more cooperative if you prime cooperation first. Uh, they achieved more. They worked harder on psychology tasks and experiments, you know, silly tasks that, that you give the participants. They worked harder on them if you primed achievement first. Uh, we started getting those kinds of effects. What Gary did, and I'm sure he told you this story, but Gary is my St. Paul. So <laughs> Gary was stalled on Damascus, right, on the way to Damascus. And he said, he had a student, oh, I want to do stuff in this goal priming that these Goldwitzer and Barge people are doing. And he's ah, a bunch of bullshit. You know, let's, um, uh, I don't want to, you're not going to, it's not going to work. You're not going to get a publication. I want you to get a job. 
So let's not go down that road. And she really wanted to. And he said, I will let you do this on the condition that I talk to editors of journals first and say, if this study doesn't work, it'll still get published. Yeah. And he did this in 2008, 2009. And he was protecting his student because he didn't want her to do all this work and have no publications and not get a job. He was looking out for his student. Well, as you know, Gary Latham and Ed Locke, Edwin Locke, had this theory that basically says everything is conscious. All goal pursuits are conscious. This whole uh, uh, goal system, uh, goal pursuit is all conscious and everything. In fact, I was at a conference in Germany in uh, 1993 at a castle uh, in southern Germany, Ringburg Castle. Um, and Ed Locke was there and uh, someone, it might have been me or somebody else, talked about these unconscious goal operation things. And he stands up and yells in front of everybody, that's preposterous. <laughs> so we know that Locke, at least of Locke and Latham, was not going to believe what we were doing. But here's, here's Gary Latham, who's a very different person because he, she did the study and it worked. And they primed people with photographs of uh, a marathon, a woman winning a marathon. I think it's a Honolulu marathon, actually. And it was up in the upper corner of a, a script they gave people at a call center. And they were calling people uh, to raise money for the local uh, public television station in Canada or the, the, the network. And it worked. And they raised more money. And they had no idea. And they denied that picture had any influence on how hard they worked to get money. But it worked. And it kept working and working and working. And Gary Latham, the skeptic that he was, believed his data. Yeah. And this is so unusual today in psychology to have somebody who actually gets the data and says, oh, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. Or maybe our theory was wrong. Or maybe there is something here. And then ever since he's been doing these studies, he now has this big meta-analysis coming out in applied psychology, the journal. 10 years of research in all these different ways. And it, it's nice because it, it's it's always supported. It, it, he came through for me in a big moment because yeah. at that moment, everyone's saying, oh, priming doesn't exist, it doesn't work. Gary Latham, even in the midst of a lot of controversy in the media about 2012 or so, was the only person who stood up for me yeah. and said, I get the same effects. And I'm sorry, I didn't believe him either, but I get these effects. And he's been a stalwart uh, supporter and and uh, and I just can't thank him enough and every but you know what I what I appreciate the most was that he was a scientist yeah. that and he that was, was objective and he believed his data and didn't say oh this can't be true and and file drawer it and he's still skeptical <laughs> he's still skeptical he talks <laughs> about that he goes he goes every time I do one of these studies I I think to my you know my my brain this should not work this should not be and then the data comes in and he does. Uh, Adding to that, he, he talked about with his research student, he said, if this comes true, I will eat the, the computer paper that, that, you know, and, and it was a funny story because he goes, you know, computer paper does not taste good um, uh, with that. But all right. So, so John, you bring in this this idea of, of replication and right. some of the, the controversy with it. And so I just want to offer up to you, you know, your thoughts on this. We asked Gary the same question. Sure. And I think there's some. I think there's some misunderstanding out there about the replication aspect Still. of this. And I think you can yeah, probably provide your insights. It's it's very, it, it, there's so much to say here. This really, I have, I have talked on, on shows and, and BBC interviews and things like that for hours uh, about this. Uh, I'll try to hit the highlights. Um, there was uh, a growing uh, a worry in psychology about 15 years ago, I'd say 20, 2005, six, seven, like that because there were a lot of people doing silly studies and they were doing studies like the color of a room causes you to do this or that. Uh, and, and they were, they were um, doing such silly kinds of things. It was almost like people were trying to one up uh, 
the other person for the silliest or weirdest finding they could. And it was making psychology look like a very silly, frivolous, uh, not very serious science. And the serious psychology scientists were um, worried about this and didn't like the way that uh, the media was portraying the field and, and these silly studies. And so they started doing things to show how this kind of thing can happen. For example, false positives. If you do 100 studies, five of them are going to work if you have a, a criterion of 95% uh, a level of uh, not being due to chance. Well, 5% are going to fall through that and be due to chance because you have a 95% level of, of accepting uh, the um, whichever, uh, the hypothesis you're testing. Okay, well, that means five out of every hundred. So you do a hundred weird studies, five are gonna work, and then you can look at work and you can publish it, right? Well, no, because there could be a false positive, so you wanna be sure it replicates. You wanna make sure that it happens again. Well, okay, so so we have some bad apples in the barrel, and the problem was every people were saying the entire barrel was, uh, was spoiled uh, because of the bad apples, people doing that. The people who were, careful scientists who have been doing this for a long time, who, who have a theory behind it, who, who you know, I, I started doing these things in 1980, 81 in my dissertation and, and, and very, moved very slowly through the 1980s and pushing it just a little bit each time. It wasn't until 1995 or so that I was doing studies priming behavior. It took me 15 years of research before I even dared to do that because uh, there was all this stuff to do in the meantime. So I didn't just jump in and start priming behavior, or priming goals, but other people started doing that and they didn't really know very much what they were doing. So there was that, that was, that was a problem. And priming was sort of smeared uh, as uh, because of those silly priming studies that were being done. And they weren't, they weren't separating the wheat from the chaff as far as the research. The other part was there were some very high profile cases of people who actually made up their data in social mm -hmm. psychology, and this is especially Diedrich Stoppel from uh, the Netherlands, who actually confessed that he would make up data sets in his kitchen overnight and then give them to his students to analyze, and then they'd have all these publications, and he did this for like 20 years. Well, this is 2010. It's exactly the same time that people are skeptical of priming and, and these, these, these silly studies. So people conflated the two. Oh, I see. Now all these priming studies are being made up, and uh, people are making up their data and this kind of thing. So it was like a perfect storm where everything converged around 2010, 2011. Um, and there is this historical uh, uh, anti antipathy in psychology towards things that are not conscious, especially cognitive psychology, which basically was founded trying to say we should study conscious thought. Conscious thought is causal. Behaviorists said it wasn't. 50 years of horrible behaviorism, trying to overthrow that yoke saying, no, we can study conscious thought and conscious judgment and conscious memory and this kind of thing. And it was sort of a glorification of the conscious mind. But I understand where that comes from. But also, it's ideological in that let's not talk about anything like that could reek of be that could hint of behaviorism, any kind of external prime of a stimulus affecting you. And uh, people still have a reaction against that. So all these things are coming together. Um, and, and so if you didn't like the idea of anything unconscious or intuitive or, or so forth, you could just easily smear it by saying, oh, it's one of those, uh, you know, they made up their data or they um, are sloppy researchers or this uh, can't be true or they're, you know, they're, they're false positives. You could just throw the whole uh, shotgun, uh, you know, throw the whole uh, set at, at uh, people whose research you didn't like. This is one thing I had a problem with back then 
is that it, it, it weaponized the idea of replication. In other words, it, you could go at and, and, and attack somebody uh, whose, whose findings go against your own theory or go against your own um, long, your own long-standing body of work, and say, "Aha! See, it doesn't replicate, uh, and so uh, you know, none of it's true, and this kind of thing." Um, and many people did do that. Uh, and there's actually some very bad science reporting at the time that took one failed replication to say the entire other hundred studies that did that were successful are wrong. And there were people who wrote blogs, even in Nature magazine, uh, with one failed replication. So I can go on and on. Obviously, I'm showing I can go on and on, right? Uh, where, where we are today, I don't know. I think I think reputations, including mine, were really hurt by this. I I will tell you, it, I know it's obviously what you're you're expecting me to say, but I never made up any data. The funny thing about about me is I never even collected any data. Uh, I was so hands off. I let my students do it. They they collected it. They analyzed. I don't even know how to analyze data really anymore with all the new uh, statistical packages that are out there. I was very lazy. As soon as I got to be a tenured professor around 1990, I had my students do everything. So yeah. they collected the data, they analyzed the data. I, I helped with the writing and the theory and the hypotheses and, and all that. But I was incredibly, totally hands off. I was the anti-stopple. You know, <laughs> the I didn't even see the data. And so I should have seen it more. I mean, I, th there are things that happened to me that I should have supervised the student more. If I'm guilty of any sloppiness and bad things, and I would do over now, I would have paid more attention to what students were doing, some of them, um, and supervised it more and been more careful. Um, and that's, and I will admit to that for sure, but it's not the same as, you know, what Stoppel did at all. Yeah. Well, and I think, Replication has gotten a, a bad rap, particularly in the media. As you said, it's like, oh, this one uh, study didn't replicate, therefore all studies are, are should be thrown out. And and the real fact of replication, that, or the the benefit that I see, and, and Tim and I have talked about this, is is you're adding information into that into the data set. So right. all right, so, so why didn't this replicate? Was this because right. of X? And so now right. you're actually just increasing the knowledge base that we have. Right. And it should be. It should be welcomed. It, this is this is an idea of saying, all right, so why didn't it? And so let's figure this out. And, yes, and that's exactly right. And that's the, the, the wonderful replication stories that, that can be told. Uh, Jeff Greenberg with terror management theory and death anxiety in Arizona, for example, he had uh, some people who couldn't replicate. And then he he had in his own lab, he had one, one student ran the study. It worked. Another student, it didn't work. Yeah. And they looked to see what are these students doing differently? And it turns out one was treating the participants in the study in a different way than the other one was. And they, well, this might be a factor that produces this effect. And they started varying it and found it was true. So they actually looked at, took it seriously that this did and this did not replicate what is different between the two cases and actually advanced their theory because of that. And there's other cases like that. That's when someone like, like a Gary Latham looks at their data and, and trusts their data, takes it seriously and doesn't just, you know, oh, this can't be true. It's blah, blah, blah. Um, and it actually, you know, tries to figure things out, advanced knowledge of the, of the subject matter. Yeah. Uh, so uh, with all this talk about priming, do you have a favorite study? Is there one that stands out to you as being particularly illustrative or meaningful in your, in your own research career? A couple. I, I really like the coffee study. Uh, I, I like it for a couple of reasons. One is it's so, it's so mundane. 
And, and <laughs> I really like these ones that are, yeah, there you go. There you go, Kurt. I mean, uh, yep. I'm drinking my hot tea, so uh, it's not coffee, it but it's, it's the tea. tea work. You know, I actually had some Brazilian coffee companies come to me and, and say it's something about coffee per se. You know, it's like, it's not tea, it's only coffee that works, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, that that was such a, a mundane kind of experience that that happens to all of us. And I'd always welcome people in my office with, and, and lots of us do, right? Uh, offering them coffee. Um, I love coffee. I like making coffee. I like smelling coffee. Um, and I always offer, offer them coffee. And I, you know, this is maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's associated with hospitality and warmth and all that. Um, but it's just, and then Dante and the whole thing all fit together. It's like, oh my God, you know, uh, this is something very basic and it leads to something really cool with this whole bonding of infants and their parents. And then it leads to this thing with neuroscience discovers it hardwired in the middle of your head. I mean, it, that just led, one thing led to another and this little coffee study became this, this incredible story. Now there's a group we're not working on this as hard as we should, but there's a group of us working on a paper about warmth effects. And uh, there are there are incredible people in medical research um, showing that uh, you can actually relieve symptoms of clinically hospitalized, depressed people. They're so depressed they're in the hospital for it. And their symptoms are dramatically reduced by a heat lamp treatment. And the heat lamp is like for a, an hour or so, uh, a, full, a whole body. And then for, for two, at least two or three weeks later, their symptomatology is, is decreased from a 30 score to a 20 score on the scale of, of uh, depressive symptomatology. And, and now they're finding that if you trace the chemicals that happen in your brain when you, when you touch something warm, and they trace it all the way through your arms and nervous system to your brain, and there are brain chemicals that are released. Uh, the pathways that are activated by the experience of physical warmth are the same ones that antidepressant medications activate. So it seems that what antidepressant medications are having their success is because they're activating that warmth pathway. And it's blocked. It's blocked in depressed people. And that's what the brain chemistry research is finding these days. Wow, and this is this is not because of the light itself or the vitamin D that you might get from it or or any of those things. It's literally just the warmth. Right, that, it's just the warmth. Right, yeah, and the studies of the of the brain chemistry uh, and uh, I, I just I can't now trucks and I, I I get all fumbly when I talk about these actual chemicals, <laughs> um, but they know what they're doing and they're uh, hospital workers in um, uh, researchers in Wisconsin and Utah and places like that and Colorado. Uh, and, and we're all getting excited because we're sharing all of our stories on our data. And, and the other thing, I, the, the funny thing about that warmth effect is that your actual feelings of warmth for other people actually do fluctuate with your body temperature. So UCLA has a hospital study where they have people come in for six hours. Every hour they take their, with the thermometer, they take their body temperature. With nurses do this, so it's very accurate. And they have them every hour also rate how close they feel and so forth to their family and friends. And it tracks. As their body temperature goes up or goes down, their feelings of, of closeness to their family and friends goes up and down, just just goes together with it. All right. So, so John, you introduced us to Joel Weinberger. And so when, when Tim was talking with him, Joel actually had a question or two for you. So uh, I mean, we're going oh, no. we're to we're bring in one of those questions. And I think it relates right to this conversation that we're having. He said, so how do you tie things together that look like they should be completely disconnected? Uh, and again, your Dante component here talking about the, the ninth level, various different things. So what is it that brings these really varied 
aspects together in, in, in your brain. Do you have any, any theory for yourself on yeah, that? Yeah, I do. I, I have a theory. Uh, <laughs> but I, haven't, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. So I'm just coming up with this theory right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is funny because Joel and I talk about Freud a lot. Uh, I'm trying to understand Freud and I'm trying to understand um, you know, his history and uh, his uh, database uh, that he used, uh, if he had one, um, for his theory. Uh, but but uh, Freud is, is a person, uh, if you read his biographies and all that, is, is very similar to somebody like William James, who is a very famous American philosopher and, and, and one of our, pretty a founder of American psychology. Mm-hmm. Okay, both of them were incredibly introspective. Both of them paid a lot of attention to what was going on in their own minds and their own feelings and their own motivations and, and desires and learned a lot from it. William James had no psychology science back then to write his incredible principles of psychology, but so much of what he said back in 1890 is still holds true today because he was right. And where did he get his data? Where did he get his, uh, some, where did he get his theory from? It had to be, he was very introspective, melancholy even, um, and he was very objective about himself and he was listening to himself. He was watching, observing other people. Uh, I think I've done that my whole life. I've always tried to uh, understand. I, the best thing that ever happened to me as a psychologist was getting a job at NYU because I go from the provinces, you know, the, the, the Illinois and the Michigans, you know, where I grew up, uh, plopped down in the middle of uh, Greenwich Village in Washington Square, you know, in 1981. My God, talk about overload, but but talk about everything going on at once, how crazy all the people and noise and, and everything. It's like it was like the place to figure out, you know, people because it, you couldn't avoid people. Um, it was, you know, everywhere you went, you, you had thousands of people around you. Uh, and it was it was a great experience. And I, I learned a lot uh, from it. But I think that's part of it, that that um, some of us are really interested in in understanding people. I've always been that way. And that's why I chose what I did for a career. Um, but you do it for 40 years, you know, and or longer. And eventually you get these very abstract, higher order representations. And they can see connections between things that you'd never have seen 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? You finally get to that point where you see these things. I've talked to uh, very well-known psychologists, for example, Susan Fisk at Princeton, uh, and, and, and she did research on uh, power and she did research on stereotyping. And, and she said, I talked to her when she said, well, I started these both when I was in grad school. I thought they were totally unrelated. But then in 1992, she writes a, a, a paper connecting the two and showing how power causes people to stereotype more because they pay less attention to the people under them. And you're always paying attention to the people above you more than the people under you in a hierarchy. And she said it all came together. She said, now I see why I was interested in both of those things in grad school at Harvard. <clears throat> she didn't know at the time. Yeah. But eventually it got there. And so so for me, I'm seeing connections and seeing things because I'm always it's always going and it's gotten to a level where these connections are made that probably I wouldn't have seen a long time ago. But the other part of the answer to that is and and this is something I talk about at the end of, of my book that is so helpful. I really recommend this to anybody, especially students or people who have assignments, papers they have to write or projects they have to do and they have to get them done like, oh, two or three months from now. Start on them now. Start on them right away. You don't. You can drop it. You can, don't have to worry about it for three months. But start your mind on it now, because once you get these things going in the back in your back office in your mind, they'll operate and they'll find things. They'll they'll notice opportunities. So I have something I'm working on, some idea, and I load it up and I get it going. Then I might 
drop it for a month or two, but it's there and it's working and it's trying to figure things out on its own. And when things happen in the world that are relevant, like examples in real life in the news or in my life or something that happens, it'll recognize it and I'll write it down. It's like a story. It's like an opportunity. It notices these things. If I had not started on these things early enough and only started them two months later when they were due, I wouldn't have gotten all that. So I'm thinking about this coffee thing and I'm watching Dante, I'm watching the Hell Channel. And it's like, <laughs> you know, if I wasn't working on, if I started working on Dante two months later, I wouldn't have seen the connection. I mean, on this coffee thing two months later, I wouldn't have seen this connection. But because it's in my mind, it notices, and oh my God. And then I go down this rabbit hole, like like you say, you know, uh, chasing Dante. And uh, I even chased it back to St. Peter in the year 79 AD. St. Peter says something similar. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Hell hath rivers of ice for the cold hearted, he says, you know, yeah. 79 AD. So uh, the Zagarnik effect, right? That, yeah, that's just, yeah, uh, going exactly. On. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So so help us understand how can how can our listeners uh, all right you're talking a lot about the priming all these environmental cues various different things how how do can we use priming what should be we thinking about if just going about our everyday life or if we're a leader within an organization or even just somebody who's working in an organization how can priming help us so in many ways uh, there's a direct way and indirect way I, I first want to say priming is an example of an unconscious influence however okay. there are other ones uh, there's ones that happen in real time, for example, uh, the when you meet somebody uh, and, and uh, you naturally mimic them, they mimic you, that, mm. that helps bonding. I can tell that story, but that's not really a priming. That's a kind of a contagion effect and a, a, a way that people bond naturally when they're meeting each other for the first time. So there's a variety of these different kinds of uh, unconscious life hacks kind of things. Once you know how the mechanism works, you can really use them and, and some great advice can be given. So don't let me forget about the, um, the, uh, the bonding and impression formation one because it's okay. not necessarily a priming effect. But priming effects, this is, a, this is a, the $64,000 question they used to say. Uh, how do you use priming when you know you're doing it to yourself? Because priming is a passive effect. It's an unconscious effect, not a conscious one. So there really is hardly any research on this. Uh, the research that exists is when people know they're being primed or they realize they're being primed, it doesn't work, at least in right. studies. But let's say, th let's do it this way. Let's say that there are, first of all, there's a good and a bad version. The, the, the positive version is, let's say there are people who inspire you. And let's say you want to be like Abraham Lincoln. Let's say you want to be honest. Let's say you want to be principled. And so it's not such a bad idea to have a, a photograph or a, a something of Abraham Lincoln on your wall in your office or your home that you might occasionally look at. Now, now you put that up there. Oh, yeah, sure. For the first few days or weeks, you know, you're going to know why you did it. Oh, yeah, Abe, I'm so honest. Yeah, yeah. OK, that won't work. Eventually, Abraham Lincoln will become part of the background. Eventually, he'll become part of the woodwork because he's been there and you forgot about it and he's there. Now. So then he's going to have the effect. He's going to be, so it won't work right away, maybe, but after a while, those things will influence you. Now, things like that. So reminders of people who do have connections, who do have goals or do have uh, positive things that you want. Uh, somebody who's overcome adversity, some, some uh, a wheelchair athlete, let's say, somebody who inspires you. Those things might not work off the bat right after you do those uh, reminders, but they will eventually. Um, but the bad thing is this. Let's say I have a uh, let's say I'm an office manager. I'm a male um, in my 20s. I got my picture of my girlfriend on my desk. Well, you know, 
what do you think of when you think of your girlfriend? It's so romantic and it's, you know, physical and all this kind of stuff. And that's what you, you know, and you love her and you, you know, you have fun. Well, that's the kind of stuff that's going to be triggered when you look at her on your desk. And then you've got secretaries, you've got other colleagues around. And, you know, maybe you don't want to be having those goals and those kinds of ideas operating in that environment. So what you have to be do, you have to be careful here that when you do put your photographs of, of people around you and all that, yeah, it's nice to be reminded and, and to be, you know, it's great that your girlfriend's smiling at you and you can feel, oh, great, I can't wait to go home and see her and, and get out of work. But you also have to think what's associated with these reminders I have around me. And is it necessarily what I want? You know, maybe it's something where I have to really work hard and get something done. And here's this reminder of fun and entertainment, relaxation. And, you know, and then that can interfere. So what you want to really think hard about is look around you. What do you have surrounding you? What are the cues you have in your environment? And what are what when you look at them, just, you know, free associate or think, what do I associate with these people? What do I associate with these reminders? And are these the kinds of things I want to have naturally uh, feeling and going on here in this room, in this place where I am right now? So you can, you know, be, be honest with yourself because you're, you know, you're only fooling yourself if you say, oh, no, that's not a problem. Um, but you can use it for, for positive things and for, for negative. The other thing is there's the physical stuff. You know, I, I, I'm not an expert in, in feng shui or anything, you know, this idea of a, a minimalistic uh, you know, the structure of your environment. But certainly uh, when things are not cluttered and they're more orderly uh, and when things are uh, there's distance between things uh, instead of everything like a room full of stuff stacked and, and craziness and all that. I mean, that kind of thing of the closeness and the lack of space that the nearness is going to be have a psychological effect, the distance, the calmness. Uh, if you got, if you have a view, the distance of the view, if you can do that, uh, these physical experiences also influence your emotional state. They influence your your psychological state. So you have to sort of think seriously. And environmental uh, designers, you know, environmental architects do this, and they already do. They've been doing this for some time, um, taking into account the the feelings and the the psychological effects of the physical space. So there's lots of ways you look around you and you see well what. How could these things be influencing me in ways that I'm not really aware of? And uh, be honest with yourself. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned bonding. You, uh, John, you, do, do you want to come back to that? So here's here's one of my favorite life hacks. Okay. The the, the ones with your, your son and daughter, your infants, that's, that's maybe my number one. But the number two is when you're meeting somebody for the first time. And let's say it's a, a new a friend, a, a neighbor, a colleague at work, you know, whatever. You know, what I do is, is, is stupid, and a lot of people do this, and as I'm just so focused on the clever, witty thing I'm going to say next, and I'm all my attention focused internally. It's like I'm thinking what I'm going to say. I'm not listening to what they're saying. So I, I never even get their name. Then I feel like an idiot. I can't even remember their name because I wasn't paying attention to them while they were saying who they were, and I wasn't listening to them at all. I was so focused on me and what I was going to say next. Well, that's the wrong way to do it. <clears throat> it turns out we naturally imitate each other. We naturally mimic each other. What we see is what we do. And this is very good for groups. And it's very good. Things are contagious like crazy. They're contagious over social media. People you don't even know that are three or four steps removed on Facebook or, or other social media. If they're obese, you'll be more likely to be obese. If they're depressed, you'll be more likely to be depressed. If they're cooperative, you're more likely to be cooperative. It's like it spreads through social networks. It spreads through real life. What we, what we see other people do, we tend to do ourselves without realizing it. Well, but there's a good thing there. And that is when you're doing this, 
the other person notices it. So you're maybe mimicking without realizing it, their facial expressions, uh, their body posture, their tone of voice, their level of vocabulary. You're matching that too. All these things we sort of come into sync, but the other person notices it. And the more you do it, the more they like you, the more they think the interaction went smoothly, the more they bond with you. So we've shown the natural, we call it a chameleon effect because you sort of become like the person you're with. And then you go to a new person like a chameleon moving somewhere else and then their colors or spots change to be with that person. So we sort of match up and, and do this. But the nice thing about it is the other person notices it and the other person likes you more. And then they've taken that out into the real world. So for example, if a waitress, and this is done in Holland, if a waitress repeats back the order of a customer in a restaurant. So I like a hamburger, french fries, and milkshake. Okay, hamburger, french fries, milkshake. She writes it down. If they do that versus not, they get more tips. They get significantly greater tips. Now, is the person giving the tip at the end? Oh, she repeated back my order. Therefore, I'll double her tip. No, they like her more. They think they rate her customer service more. They've done this in French department stores with, with the electronics department at a big uh, department store in Paris. If the sales clerk just repeats back what the person says, Oh, hi, can I help you, sir? Yes, I'd like, uh, my, my grandson turns 13 next week. I'd like to buy an e uh, uh, MP3 player for him. Oh, I see, oh, your grandson's having a birthday next week and you'd like to get an MP3 player for him. Well, come this way. Or they don't do that, right? They sell something that's like uh, over this study, 85% sales in the mimicry, mimicry condition, 63% in the no mimicry condition. Customer service is significantly higher when they go out in the parking lot and they ask, customers for how well they were treated by the staff and all that. All these things are, they, they pay off in the real world. So, so here's, here's the last part of the story. Who does this imitation more? It turns out people who score more highly on empathy scales. There's a standard empathy scale. If you score high on that, you're also more likely to do this imitation. So this is the trick. When you meet somebody for the first time, just look at them. Just pay attention to them. Don't do anything else. Just listen to them. That's good anyway, because they, they know you're paying attention and listening to what they're saying. But just look at them, because by watching what they do, you'll naturally tend to mimic and imitate them without. You don't try to do any of this. Don't try to do any of it at all. Just let it happen. Just look at them. You'll naturally imitate. They'll notice it in the subtle way. They'll like you more. And it's such uh -huh. an easy, natural mechanism. Just, just look at them. <laughs> and and I, I really works. It works. It's, it's just, it, but it's a natural evolved mechanism, just like the bonding with the, with the mother or father. It's a primitive mechanism. It works. And, and it, we don't have to try. Yeah. I uh, love that. Oh man. Uh, first of all, can we get three more hours with you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this again sometime in the future though. I, I do like uh, doing these things more than once, you know? So, yeah. you know, okay. if you want to, I'm, I'm calling yeah. you, I'm calling your bluff here. Uh, you know, but if you ever want to, please just ask me because you guys are great. I, I enjoy this. Before we go, can I can I just ask a couple of music questions? Oh yeah, yeah Tim needs to ask his music questions. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This is our moniker. We got to stay true to our moniker here, behavior yes. groups. John, I'm curious about um, the uh, Robert Plant versus Jimmy Page question first. Uh, why, why Robert Plant? Why do you think he would be more fun than Jimmy I, Page? I, honestly, now I thought about this for a while now. I think that he reminds me of somebody that I was best, best friends with in high school. Uh, I had somebody, you know, it was hippie times and, uh, you know, it was high school in the, like around 1970, 73, like that. And, um, it, 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 there were people like that. I was in, 
uh, radio, I worked at a radio station. There were people like Robert Plant uh, with that kind of hair and that kind of clothing. And I mean, they weren't as good looking, sorry, but who is, you know? And, <laughs> That's true. And, uh, you know, I thought actually they are all pretty good looking. The Led Zeppelin, I mean, Bonham was the dumbest of the bunch, you know, as far, but he was a pretty decent, you know, he was a, they were all pretty, yeah. pretty decent looking guys. Uh, Paige, of, of course, was godlike uh, in his looks um, with his hair and everything else. But uh, Plant just seems to me, the kind of person you, he was always smiling and cracking smiles and kidding around a lot, you know, and that's the kind of person I hung out with. So um, I think I would be too much in awe of Jimmy Page. I mean, Jimmy Page was, you know, people back then wrote books like the, the like the gods, the, the, the gods walk with us or the gods, you know, they, we did. I mean, we, we thought of these guys as godlike. They yeah. were, you know, demigods, at least they were above humans. They were, it was uh, to actually see, and I actually saw them in Chicago stadium. Wow. One, one time in uh, late in their career, right? Late in their uh, in 77. So uh, it wasn't the best time. You know, I would have loved to be there in 1970 in, uh, in um, yes. uh, uh, Royal Albert Hall, you know, and, and January 9th, my birthday, I've been, my 15th birthday. They had this incredible concert. And Jimmy Page, of course, is also my birthday. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm connected. I'm born <laughs> the same day. So his his 26th birthday, my 15th birthday, uh, January 9th, 1970, in Royal Albert Hall. Susan Sontag, I think, was there. Somebody, Glor Gloria Steinem or Susan Sontag, somebody was there who covered it, who wrote an article for Rolling Stone about the concert. Um, probably their best ever. Um, but but I would have loved to be you know see them then. But I saw them eventually. I saw them in Chicago Stadium with nineteen thousand other people, um, so I got to do that. But uh, they were they were they were godlike. They were gods yeah. to, to us. It, it had to be better than the Super Bowl performance, though. So oh I yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was a lot later. I mean, yeah, that was yeah, a lot, yeah. lot, lot later. Yeah. I will, I will. So you love music. Do you listen to music while you work? Uh, no, it's. Um, uh, I, I once was a relative in a past life to a, a wonderful poet, a poet named Lucian Strike, S-T-R-Y-K. Uh, he was a, a Zen poet, uh, and uh, he was actually a survivor of the Battle of Iwo Jima in, in World War II. And he was, um, uh, he once, I once asked him that question, do you, uh, do you listen to music while you write poetry and things like that? And he said, no, absolutely not. So when he listens to poetry, when so he listens to music, he is totally involved in the music. He doesn't want to be distracted. He wants to listen to the music and 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 do nothing else but that. And when he's doing the poetry, he wants nothing else but that. And to, for me, uh, music is is too emotional. It has too much of a hold on me. There used to be a Talking Heads album. Yeah, Talking Heads album called Fear of Music. And actually, yeah. uh, I sort of have the fear of music. I developed it. Uh, because it has too much control or power over my emotions, and I feared that I feared giving up control. Uh, it was two two things. Too many things came back to me because it was such a big part of my life, mainly in the 1970s. Um, you know, so so I actually avoided music entirely. In fact, I I only listen to music one time every year, one month or two every year, and I don't listen to it the rest of the year because it has too much power over me. And the only time I listen to it, I do these fantasy baseball drafts, uh, which yeah. is, is still going on, believe it or not. We're almost in June because baseball season hasn't started. <laughs> but I, I get myself all revved up, and I've been doing that. Um, you know the Michael Jordan documentary? Yeah. yeah. So you know the the Alan Parsons Project series, you yeah. know, where they introduced the Bulls in Chicago Stadium? I have that going on a loop. So I, I have that, you know, <laughs> psyching me up and, and fighting my way, competing with these guys in these baseball drafts for like an hour and a half, this loop of serious over and over again. Oh 
it's so that's that's silly because that's not really music. That's just emotion. That's a motivational and all that emotional piece. But it's, uh, it is, yeah. it's it's fascinating. Two two things here. One is. You could have, I, I could have replaced the words you just said about that with what Tim has talked about. Cause Tim is exactly the same way where yeah. when he listens to music, he, he has to focus totally on it and very, very much. And I am totally different from that. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I am, I'm, 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 I am not there. Yeah. But then this, this idea of using music as this emotional uh, piece. We, we talked with Robert Cialdini who, who was on the show yeah. and asked him the same question. And he talked about using music specifically to get him into, if he had to give a speech, right? He uses a certain yes. walk up music in order to get himself, you know, excited Absolutely. about this and various Absolutely. There's actually research on this that uh, people going into war, like the Israeli psychologist has, uh, uh, when they're going into uh, com- not combat, but patrols, in yeah. Israel, they they play like you know heavy metal. They play like angry music. Football players, you know, uh, before a game, this angry kind of music, right? They don't play yo yo ma songs of peace and joy. <laughs> you know, oh, then they go out and get flattened by the by the Steelers. You know, they go out there, Arr! and so you know, uh, music is emotional. Emotions do provoke you know goals of recklessness and and putting yourself out there and uh, and going for it uh, and confidence and all those kinds of things. Um, that's another topic. I know we're getting close to time, but this whole yeah. idea of, of emotions influencing like sadness, influencing motivations and causing you to pay more than you should for things and, and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, that's another source of these influences we're not really all that aware of. Um, and there's a lot of them. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I had a great time in the 1970s. I was a disc jockey for five different radio stations in five different states. Um, and and uh, jazz and classical even, but mainly rock and uh, and uh, that, that was I had a blast. I, I love it. Well, we are definitely going to have to have you back on because we could we could spend the whole time just on music. We could spend the whole time on these other influences. I think there's definitely. so much more that we can we can we can talk about. So, first off, thank you very much. We appreciate the time and the insights. I think. Uh, it's been really valuable, not only for Tim and me, but all, all of our listeners. So, yeah, well, thank you, Kurt and Tim, for what you're doing, too. I mean, this is what we need more of, you know, the connective tissue between the science that we're, we're studying and then, uh, you know, getting it out to people in general instead of just in some musty journals or uh, just a few people knowing about it. We really need to do more of what you're doing. And, and uh, you're, you're incredibly valuable to, to psychologists like me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavior grooves discussion with John, have a free-flowing conversation on those topics, and whatever else comes into our hotly, unconsciously influenced brains. Hot, hot, hot. Warming uh, well, things up, huh? Yeah, well, you know, he was uh, talking about how temperature influences what we what we think and what we do. I thought that was amazingly fascinating. I should ask right now, are you drinking hot tea or iced tea? I am drinking a cold Coke Zero. <laughs> oh, you little brittle, brittle bitch, you. You're just going to be terrible. Huh? Well, what are you awful. drinking? I'm drinking an ice cold you know, uh, Coke Zero as well. <laughs> yeah, there. see, we, we were hating each other at this point because Instantly. you are so mean and cold because that's where my hand is now cold and I attributed that to you. Yeah. <laughs> What I so this is an interesting okay, piece, right? Yes. Because he talks about this, and again, at the surface, you sit there and you go, "There is no 
freaking way possible that because I hold a mug of hot coffee or vice versa, a glass of cold iced tea, that is going to influence my opinions on somebody I'm meeting. And yet, the research suggests that that is very much true. It really is. And uh, this is a great testament to him as a scientist, to be a guy who is going to say, this is what the data says. Yeah. The, da- the data just shows us this. We have uh, we conducted a study. We isolated the variables, and this is what the data came back and, and exposed to us. And this is who we are. Yeah, this is just who we are. And uh, I don't know. You know, how do we apply that in in the real world? I think that there are a lot of things that we can certainly do, and that we do. You know, a lot of salespeople do this very naturally. You know, that they offer warm coffee, that they'll offer a, a cup of coffee when you, in days when we would meet up in offices, uh, you would go <laughs> into an office and, right, you would be offered something warm to drink. Yeah. Uh, rarely would I be offered iced tea, you know, or, or something cold. It was oftentimes about, here, how about a warm cup of coffee? So yeah. I, I think that there are real practical applications. And of course, I think that we connect to our DNA on this as well on yeah. a kind of a simple level. It, it, it does make sense to us. Yeah. Again, it was fascinating to think through how he tied things together, right? And this idea of this whole warmth came from, you know, this this connection with Dante and Saint Paul, and then going to Freud and to and to William James. All of these people having these different concepts of warmth and bringing them out, and I find that fascinating because my brain isn't necessarily that connector like John's is. Yeah, it, it's pretty great to uh, t- that he puts this stuff together. But it also sounds like he's, he's pretty intentional about it, that he's using the Zygarnik effect very intentionally. Like he sets into motion these, what could I put together with this? And lets that bubble up in the subconscious, which is really, really cool that he's intentional about that. And I, uh, I've done the same thing when it comes to songwriting. Mm. Uh, you know, I've had ideas that I liked and I thought, I really like this idea. I'm going to write it down. It's a good nugget. It's got, there's a something good about this, but it's not a song yet. And before I go and try and just hammer it and force it into a song, sometimes it's actually better to just let it sit in the subconscious and see what other narrative springs up from, uh, around it before I actually sit down to start to craft the song. Yeah, I do this actually often with writing. So writing a blog post or writing other aspects where I will have a idea and I start writing and then I stop and I stop before I finish and I give myself a few days when I can, when I'm not being an idiot and, and being rushed because I've you know, procrastinated <laughs> way too long on, on these things. Right. But that's actually right. an interesting piece because even for those people who are procrastinators, um, and I think uh, Adam Grant has done some some interesting work on this because he is what he calls himself a precrastinator um, where you know if something gets to him, he has to do it right away. Um, and he said he's found actually that by starting something and then waiting and having the Zagarnik effect uh, happen, there's a lot of uh, 
you get a, a broader perspective and you, mm-hmm. you actually end up with a better result because he did work on procrastinators and precrastinators and different things. And I found that to, to actually happen. So it's one of those pieces that I think is a really interesting aspect of how we can you know, improve our life by just doing some of these things. And, um, you know, it's also really good if you're in in business. I I know I'm working with clients and I'll be going, yeah, I started on that. Uh, I haven't finished it yet. And they're going, oh, you already started on it. And I'm going, yeah, I started on it right away. (laughs) (laughs) And they're almost surprised. Like nobody does that. Nobody Um, does that. No. Crazy. But it it also made me think about Kristen Berman's comment when we talked to her about marinating. Now I know that this is, uh, this is a weird connection, right? But but she talked about, okay, right, here it is. So when she talked about the value of being in lockdown is to try to make new dishes with marinades because marinades take a long time. And so now she's kind of getting into recipes that have uh, you know, that have marinades and, and right. that, that actually, and then you get different flavors in, in your food because you're marinated, it's ma- marinating Be- something. Yeah. Because you're marinating it and it's sitting in that sauce for, for a long time, for a long time, hours to, to maybe over a day. And, and it takes on, and it, it's, it's a better uh, recipe or a better meal after the fact. Yeah. As opposed to just trying to salt and pepper the steak at the end, you know, to marinate that steak in these and that whatever it would be provides a whole different flavor. And I think that's really important to think through uh, as one of these things. It wasn't a tip that he talked about because he talked about some life hacks as well. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we um, talk about those. And so it wasn't one that he called out, but I think that's a real good one to, to take into account. Yeah. Uh, you know, along those lines, uh, just to follow up on on some of his life hacks, I, uh, the one that I loved the most was just pay attention to people. Just when you meet someone, when, you, when I'm in a meeting with someone, even that I've met, just focus on them. Just focus. And just let all the natural stuff happens that comes from focusing sink in listening and and mimicry and all those all that stuff just happens very naturally and i'm finding much more uh receptivity on my own part as well as i think on the on the part of the people that i'm meeting with when i'm just really focused yeah it really helps it's amazing how our brains mimic without us even knowing it yeah. And if you're in that and you're focused in on that other person, you don't have to try to mimic them because mimicry obviously creates that level of trust and some of the other aspects that he talked about. But you don't have to try because we do it naturally. It's part of who we are as human beings. And so by having that focus, it really makes that connection more powerful. And he talked about it when you first meet somebody. I think that there's power in doing it at any point. Right. Which Mm -hmm. is tiring, I will tell you, in trying to do this, maintaining that focus can be really tiring, particularly in these days still where many of our meetings are distant and through video chat and all of that. But if you can do it, a really powerful hack. What what's another hack that that he talked about? I'm sorry, were you saying something? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about the hug your kids stuff? What about oh, that? I, mean, I have been doing that more and more and more. Good. 
Good. So now my 14-year-old isn't a you know big hugger anymore, but my 10-year-old, I can still get her to hug me. And I just, mm. I put my arms out and then she'll come up and she'll give me a hug and I hug her back. And, you know, at night <sighs> before going to bed, I don't just say goodnight. I go in and I give her a hug. Says, I'm taking that to heart. I am really taking that to heart. So, Way to go, dad. Way to yeah. go, dad. I also like the, the feng shui stuff. Organize yeah. your life. You know, get get organized. I thought that that was really great. I instantly cleaned off my desk. Everything that is within my field of view. Um, <laughs> not your whole desk? You well, just the, whole the desk. field of view? <laughs> well, I figured that's the most important. But it was also the easiest. And I'm, you know, generally lazy. And so this was a way just to... And it's made a difference. I feel calmer just having... Just less stuff to look at. It's actually been really great. I I live in a household that um, is not that way, <laughs> and, and, and it's 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 myself as well. So I'm not just laying blame on my family, um, although they're worse at it than I am, which is hard <laughs> to, to say. Of course. So, but I I have been getting into this whole thing of actually cleaning the kitchen. Uh, every evening, uh, doing all of the dishes, which didn't always happen before, but it is one of mm-hmm. those things. And I found, A, just the the act of doing dishes, because uh, obviously we put a bunch of it in the dishwasher, but there's all those those pots and pans and other things that you have to do by hand. But I find that doing it by hand is, is actually relaxing and almost meditative to a certain degree. Yes. And then having that nice, clean kitchen uh, just is so nice. Yeah. Um and yeah. I need to do it. I need to do it with my office, though. I, I really do need to do it with my office. And I need to do look around my office and say, what are the pictures and images that I have up? And are they influencing me in ways that I want them to influence? I have a lot of pictures of my family up um, and, you know, a picture of a beach scene and, you know, uh, uh, kind of artistic vine on the side of a building thing, but yeah. I don't have Abraham Lincoln up. I don't have, yeah. you know, other things around like trying to be intentional about having that subconscious prime work. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't have any pictures of Abe Lincoln. Apparently I don't care about honesty is, is how, <laughs> how I'm taking that. <laughs> You're already honest. You don't need to prime yourself to be more <laughs> honest. I think. But I certainly could prime myself to have, better habits. And I have to admit that the vast majority of images in my office are music and, mm-hmm. you know, images, you know, yeah. you know, you can see behind me. So that's, um, so it just makes me wonder if, am I, am I only drawing my attention away from non-music work when I'm, when I'm here in the office working on things that aren't music? I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. Okay. What else? Were there, were there any any other life hacks? That, uh, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I, I think just this idea that environment matters and particularly, you know, over time, what that can mean, right? Yeah. So, yeah, be conscious of the environment that you're in and the environment that you're creating for yourself uh, and, and be purposeful about it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do you want to talk about the repl- replication crisis stuff? Yeah, I think I think there's an aspect of this. So we we talked a little bit about it, and I think John has very strong opinions on this. Rightfully so, uh, yep. he's been disparaged. I think probably a little too much uh, by some 
people in in the media and particularly some of his studies uh and i know there's there's a lot of strong feelings there i just think that this whole the even the way that we talk about we call it this replication crisis and it's not i i don't see it Mm -hmm. as a crisis what i see this is is this is science um this is the idea that we are adding knowledge to the the base of knowledge that we already have we are refining our insights on this and so if a if a study doesn't replicate we have to look at this from the perspective of saying why did it not replicate what were the were there some specific variables about this that were the, present in in you know the first study that weren't in the second or other different things and again we've talked about you know this idea of of you know the more knowledge that we have the better off that we're going to be absolutely it is not a crisis and i think that that framing is um inappropriate and unfortunate that that it's grown in that uh w- with that kind of vernacular we've talked to other guests about it and the, all the effort put into trying to figure out how can we replicate this or how can we not replicate this misses the point that we are just better off adding to the literature, adding to the body of work, un- understanding more nuances and coming to more understandings of the nuances is much better than just trying to figure out, well, did it replicate exactly or didn't it? You know, this binary thinking really doesn't doesn't work for better yeah. for us in the long term. Let's yeah. think let's think in like like Annie Duke might suggest. Let's think in bets. Let's think about the percentages. Let's let's, let's embrace the shades of gray and the nuances that come in all of the findings rather than just a yes or a no. Well, and, and this goes back to what it means to be a scientist, right? This idea that we talked we started with Gary Latham uh when he was talking about he set out to kind of disprove you know, John, in in some of the work, he said, I don't want this falling into IO psychology. And yet when the data came back, he had to reassess his beliefs. We find it so hard to go back and reassess our beliefs when new data is presented that isn't in alignment with those beliefs. That is, you know, confirmation bias at its best. And as scientists, we have, we we fall prey to that as well. Um, And so I love this concept of saying, all right, let's, how, how do we look at this? And how do we get past this idea that we are so strongly held to our preconceived ideas that we don't even look at the data appropriately? And we need to look at that data appropriately and then adjust our ideas, our beliefs, our thoughts based upon the data uh, and and what it says. Absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about with yes. John? Yes. One more thing, actually, and, and I'm sure you want to get into music, but uh, before that, before the music aspect, um, he talked about this warmth piece, right? And this idea that warmth relates into positive and good and nice. And, you know, that's what you, you, when you hold that, that hot coffee mug versus cold and the, the vernacular that we use about, oh, she's just a warm person versus, oh, she's a cold, you know, icy person, icy person. And you and I both have these pastimes that uh, revolve around heat 
right? You like to hot tub. Yes. And I love to sauna. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, yeah. and so, and hot, does, yeah. Yeah. So, does that make us nicer people? Uh, or are we just more nice we're prompting because ourselves. we like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're prompting ourselves constantly to be warm. Yeah. Um, or is that because we're natively icy cold and that. <laughs> We need that to stay balanced. Well, and, and, and how does that how does know. that relate to when after my sauna, I like to take a, an ice uh, plunge or a cold plunge or a cold shower after after the sauna? Uh, really exploring my Wim Hof as cold as it can as I can stand for as long as I can stand. Well, then that means that all the warm effect of being nicer is something that you don't want to have last on you. You don't want it to be a lasting effect. You want to make sure that you you experience it and then get rid of it as quickly as possible. Ah, maybe it is. I, <laughs> I, I have know. no idea what no, that says about you or me about this, but I just well, see, there's was- a, the, the social side, I think, is kind of interesting. I would love to, to see because, you know, it, it, sometimes it's not just family sometimes it's friends yeah and and so i wonder if their experience of us or my experience of them is more favorable just because of being in this warm environment you know i wonder how that influences social relationships yeah really interesting it'd be interesting too to to know i mean i know when i've hot tubbed it's usually been skiing and so again, in a cold in, 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 snow skiing, it, it's yeah. snow skiing. So yeah. it's been in a cold environment and you're outside and often there's snow right out there and it's, and it's cold, but you're in this warm thing and you are with sometimes strangers, you know, because it's a big communal hot tub and there are other skiers that, you know, are staying wherever you're staying. And I wonder if that contrast actually feeling warm when it's cold outside can add to it all sorts of fun research opportunities yeah. for people out there. So, are you willing to engage in a conversation more with a stranger in a hot tub than if you were in a swimming pool, a cool swimming pool? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Good question. Okay. So, I, I do want to talk about music because we had such a great conversation that we could have gone for an hour with John. On- well, you could have gone for an hour with John. Yeah. Because so- he likes the same music as you. <laughs> He's just, like Led Zeppelin and pre nineteen seventy eight stuff. So, <laughs> well, I think the first time that he saw Led Zeppelin though was like in nineteen eighty four or something like that, wasn't it? It was. I late. can't remember. He it said was, it was later. Yeah, he said it was later. past their prime. I'm saying I thought it was in the late seventies. Well, maybe but it was anyway. late seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask. <clears throat> excuse me. I wanted to ask you actually about the music while you work thing. John was very very specific. And so in all of the conversations we've had now with all these guests about music while you work and some people like no way and some people are like, well, only if it's kind of in the background and it doesn't have words. And then some people are like, oh, yeah, you know, it drives me, you know, which those three categories, you kind of fit into the middle category more, don't you? That you like to listen, but it can't be distracting. Is that right? Uh I'm, I'm, yeah, good are you, question. Are, are, are I, you I, more towards the, you'll listen to, you want something to drive you, you want, you want music to engage you and drive you when you're working? So again, I think there's the nuance that many people talk about, right? It depends on the type of work. And so. Right. The uh, brainless task versus the high the cognitive. brainless task. task, I can listen to anything, right? Mm-hmm. Those are those things where I don't need to have it 
if I am trying to write, it's it's the formulation of words in down on paper, then I tend to be more of the more of just the music without having words associated with it. So more of a, an acoustic type thing. Uh, again, Instrument, instrumental, instrumental piece. Yeah. So that that's me. But yeah, I can for most other work, I can I can have you know, whatever going on in the background and yeah. it, it, it will impact me or won't impact me or maybe it does impact me and I don't even know it. So well, I, I like the way Gary Latham talked about that as uh, if it's kind of a mindless task that is un- relatively unpleasant. He likes to use music to prompt him in a positive way. So he'll mm. listen to a particular kind of music that is sort of upbeat and sugary and, and uh, uplifting, you know, yeah. in, in, in that way. Um yeah, I, I just think that it's really fascinating that John talked about music as having control over him, you know, mm. that it controls him. And he's the first guest that we've talked to that used those kinds of words, and that really resonated with me. That was very, very closely to how I feel. Music, if I hear music in the background, it, it, uh, I, I start to listen to it because I want to know, well, what is that? What is ah. that song? And is it is it familiar? Oh, it's unfamiliar. Oh, that's really interesting. And that engages me in a completely seductive and exclusive way. And it's very hard for me to do anything. You know, people like to have music while they're d- at cocktail parties and things like this. And it's hard for me to have a conversation with someone if there's music in the background. Yeah. I mean, the uh, quote, right? He said, music is too emotional. Um, mm-hmm. It has too much of a hold on me. It has too much control over my emotions. I only listen to music only once or twice a year because it has so much power over me. Um, but then yeah. he listens to it during during the the fantasy baseball draft. So that's <laughs> yes, yes, with the, with the theme from the Bulls, right? <laughs> yeah, you know. So yeah, uh, it, it, it is interesting, and music is powerful, um, and I think it impacts different people, different differently, obviously, as we found out from just asking our guests about this. It's been really cool. Yeah. Okay, folks, thanks for hanging in there. And we've got a bonus track coming up. Kurt's going to share with us. So stay tuned. Hey, this is Kurt with your bonus track and groove idea from our conversation with John Barge. We covered a lot of ground. So here are a few key things that we think you'll want to remember. First, John's work on priming in general and goal priming specifically is quite remarkable. John is a top-notch scientist and he lives and dies by the quality of his data. He pointed out how he chose to see the replication crisis as a learning opportunity, not as a problem to be solved. Secondly, John reminded us how important the Zagarnik effect can be when it comes to creating interesting connections between things. His story about connecting his love of coffee with Dante's divine comedy with his interest in William James and Freud, uh, Sigmund Freud, is quite amazing. It inspires us to imagine what our brains might be able to put together if we can only pay attention to what's going on. Third, John identified a few life hacks that can improve your life and those around you. Remember, the unconscious mind is constantly being influenced by the world around us and all the things in it. We were glad to be reminded how important it is to be intentional with things that are around us and in the environment, how we organize our work and living spaces, and maybe most important of all, to make sure that we hug our kids. Coming from a world-class scientist, 
that sounds like really good advice to follow. Okay. Our groove idea for the week was inspired by John's comments about pictures that we have all around us in our work and home environment. They're priming us all the time. As John said, if you want to be honest like Abraham Lincoln, put his picture near your desk. At first, it'll be intentional and conscious, and it won't have the desired effect. However, after a while, it will become like wallpaper, and then the priming influence will start influencing you in subtle ways. So here's your challenge. Make a careful review of the photographs on the walls of your office and look at the things on your desk. As John said, what are these reminders around me associated with? Is it necessarily what I want? And we encourage you to take an inventory and then be intentional about your space. Does a fun picture interfere with my overriding goals of getting things done? Um, And make sure that you're honest with yourself about this. So go ahead, update the pictures on your walls around your workspace. That's our challenge for you this week. And with that, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Behavior Grooves and we look forward to bringing you more of the same. To do so, we greatly appreciate your subscription to our Patreon site. And of course, we always welcome a good review. And in the meantime, stay in touch and have a great week.